If you weighed all the animals on Earth, and if you weighed all the plants, the plants would outweigh us animals at a ratio of about 1,000 to 1. Plants both rule the world and they keep us animals alive. If every animal was removed, I'm not saying the plants would love it necessarily or that all would be copacetic. But the plants, they'd make it. They'd live a long time without us animals. But animals without plants? I wonder if we'd make it for even one week, for even one day. Plants make our oxygen. They're the only thing that makes our oxygen. Without them, we're nothing. Plants are fascinating, and they're easier than animals to study. They don't move around, but they do all the same things that animals do, and you can ask all the same questions um, with a nice organism that stays put. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. Plants are so much a part of our world that most of the time we barely notice them. They're like air to us or like sidewalk, something that if noticed at all are seen in the periphery. The Chicago Botanic Garden, though, takes plants very seriously, and we have one of their scientists, Kay Havens, as our guest. My name is Kay Havens, and I'm the Director of Plant Conservation Science at the Chicago Botanic Garden. That job Kay has is actually a giant one. Kay is a player. She's a national leader in the conservation community. She encourages young people to become scientists, and her work is part of what makes the Chicago Botanic Garden a global powerhouse in conservation and plant research. Oh, and one other thing about Kay, she really likes what she does. It's the best job in the world. (laughs) Really, um, honestly, one of the things I study is a rare thistle that grows on the sand dunes around Lake Michigan. So, Kay, most people have a general idea of what a thistle is, but you're the expert, so why don't you break it down for me? What exactly is a thistle? I think when most people hear thistle, they think spiky weed in my yard or in my pasture that I don't want. And if you bump against it, it does kind of, it's, yeah, it, it is prickly, it, has, it can scratch it you. It prickles, and um, definitely the ones, you know, I, I pull it out of my yard, the the exotic ones, uh, when I find it. And yeah, it, it leaves some damage. <laughs> but my thistle, uh-huh. my wonderful <laughs> thistle, pitcher's thistle, is not nearly as spiky. It's more woolly. Um, so the leaves aren't green, they're almost gray-white because they're so woolly. And that's an adaptation to living on the very arid sand dunes. It helps hold water into the leaves to have all these hairs on them. And then the flowers are um, just barely pink, so kind of cream color to barely pink. And uh, a healthy one when it flowers can be four or five feet tall, uh, but mostly they flower at about two feet. Is there anything different about how the pitcher's thistle lives? What's its life cycle? They're an unusual plant. They're called monocarpic, which means they flower only once and then they die. So it'll live as a rosette um, in the sand dune for four, five, eight years, and then it sends up its flower spike and flowers and dies. Oh, my goodness. So that's really special when you see one in flower and mm-hmm. not just the rosette. Right. It's like a century plant, but it doesn't take a century. <laughs> uh-huh. What is it that you personally love about this thistle? I think why I find it so fascinating, one is 
it's a thistle and it's about to go extinct. You know, what is it doing so differently from the thistles that are weeds? And that grow so abundantly that grow and so, so abundantly. easily. And the other thing is, it is so important for the insect community. And so you can sit and watch one when it's flowering, which I do <laughs> quite frequently. And 40, 50 different species of bees can visit it in just one day. Dozens of different kinds of bumblebees, little sweat bees, these beautiful green, shiny halictid bees, clear wing moths, monarch butterflies, other butterflies. I mean, you name it, if it's an insect and it's on the dunes, it's visiting that thistle. So you're not the only one that loves it. I am not the only one who loves it. The insects, I think, love it even more than I do. I seem to remember that thistles bloom in July. Is that around the time, kind of midsummer? Yeah. So does that basically mean that you chose a profession and chose a subject of research that would have you on the beach in July? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, not a bad choice, Kay. Not a bad choice. I study this plant in Door County, Wisconsin, which you is know, dreamy. Is dreamy. For anyone that's not a Midwesterner, that's that little piece of Wisconsin that sticks right out into Lake Michigan, uh, Long Peninsula. Yeah, and it's full of cherry trees. And so it's all the cherries you can eat and cheese curds and this thistle. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know what more you could want. Kay's special thistle, the pitcher's thistle, is going extinct because of a goofy mistake. We humans. What are we going to do with ourselves? We try so hard to get things right, but sometimes we just don't. Those sharp, spiky thistles we were talking about before, well, those aren't native to the Midwest, but they sure do love it here a little too much. They're called Canada thistle, and they've been in North America for a couple hundred years. They were brought over here by us from Southeast Europe and Asia, Canada thistle really is this terrible invader. It grows in huge briary stands in any sort of field or meadow, and it's horrifying to walk through. Kate wasn't kidding. Your shirt rips, your skin gets scratched. Anyway, folks who hate Canada thistle started noticing that there was this little animal, an insect called a weevil, a certain species of weevil from Eastern Europe, and that this type of insect gobbled up thistle seeds. Aha, these folks thought. Let's spread more of this puppy around, and the weevil will eat the seeds of the nasty Canada thistle, and there will be much less of it, and peace will be restored to the land. Sadly, the Eastern European weevil that we hoped would save the day didn't confine itself to eating the seeds of the nasty kind of thistle the one we accidentally imported from southeastern Europe and Asia. The weevil also chomped up the seeds of Kay's super special pitcher's thistle. So, the biocontrol agent, the weevil, which isn't native, that was supposed to get rid of the Canada thistle, which isn't native, is instead attacking this fantastic plant that is native and that supports more pollinator species than any other flower in the dunes community. The weevil has turned into Kay's enemy number one. Kay, this situation with your thistle, when you're trying to explain it to somebody, is there something that you make a comparison to? So this will sound odd, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie called Cane Toads. N no, I haven't. 
So Cane Toads is a story of biocontrol gone wrong. And they begin to breed uh, very vigorously. And it's it's a documentary, you know, my favorite. Oh, was this the movie in Australia? Yes. <laughs> oh, tell, remind me that I, I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever seen it. So describe it. So it's the story of cane toads that were introduced to Australia to control an insect that ate sugar cane. But it turned out it didn't do that. One male and one female in Darwin is more than sufficient to populate the entire top end of the Northern Territory. It was not an effective biocontrol at all, but it was a very effective invasive species. The best thing is to get rid of them, get a big stick and hit him with it. And the people perceive the cane toad in really different ways. There are people who love them and feed them dog food and dress them up in little dolls' dresses. And there are people, including this biologist who cracks me up, who hates them because when native animals eat them, they're poisoned because these toads are poisonous. The practice of uh, going out and getting one of these things and putting them into a billy, boiling it down and eating the residue, I think is absolutely repulsive. And then there's other people who use that poison as a hallucinogen, <laughs> and so they smoke it. <laughs> and so it is this collection of really wacky people and the ways they interact with cane toads. And it is a parable of biocontrol gone wrong, which, of course, you know, it relates to me. And um, what's killing my beloved thistle is these biocontrol agents who've gone wrong. And... So I, I love that movie. In fact, I've loved it for a long time, and I tried to buy it back when we all bought um, videotapes. And so I went into the video store. I said, I want to order this. And ever after, whenever I would go in to get a video, they go, oh, it's the weird cane toad lady. <laughs> <laughs> so do you hate that bull weevil? <laughs> the, the weevils that... Uh, <laughs> That yes, I do. Um, they're evil, and uh, uh, I I dispatch them with much gusto. So yeah, they're they're everywhere. Um, really, they're very common. They're very common. I hate them too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is there a thinker or a writer about science that you particularly admire? So right now I'm reading um, Songs of Trees by David George Haskell. He's a wonderful writer. He doesn't write like a scientist, even though he is a scientist as well. Um, he writes much more like a poet. And he's talking about how he can go into the wilderness and tell what trees are around him by the noises that the raindrops make as they percolate through the leaves. But his whole thesis is the interconnectedness of nature. And I do admire how he, he can bring home these scientific principles in such an eloquent and poetic way. I identify with that because I've thought often about the trees outside of my house, that if somebody recorded them in the spring and in the late summer and then in the fall, and then played those recordings for me and asked me when they were recorded, I would definitely know just by the way the leaves sounded. Have you ever had an experience like that where you sort of realize that you're knowing something so thoroughly? Yeah, probably not, not in that way, but 
the, you know, there are places I definitely feel home. And I, I work a lot in the sand dune community around Lake Michigan, and I can walk into the dunes and I can know who's around me and who I will expect to see in terms of plants and animals, not in terms of people, because I know that community so well. Tell me a little bit about the thistle that you study. When you see it at a distance, do you know immediately what Mm. you're seeing? Mm -hmm. You would know it no matter what. Absolutely. Like you know a friend. Absolutely. And there's kind of a, a gestalt when you're out collecting seeds of a species, you get to know where it lives and who it associates with. And when you walk into that community, you can be walking for miles and you're like, this isn't right, this isn't right. And all of a sudden you say, this is right. And you turn around and there's the plant. You you just know it. It's a wonderful feeling (laughs) when you begin to recognize what that plant needs and, and who it lives with. So what were your early experiences with nature like? I think I've always been a nature nut. And why is that? Like, why well, I'm always curious about how it is that people get that fondness. I blame my mother. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> she was a nature nut. She is still. And um, she was always taking me out and showing me things. And we'd go on vacations to the beach and we'd pick up all the seashells and put names on them. And we'd go birding and we'd plant plants in the garden and she'd teach me all the names of them. So that interest in different species and their roles in the ecological community, I think, has been with me from very early on, and and it's probably due to my mom. Did you grow up in an urban area, or were you? I grew up in Chicago, yeah. I love that. And then where did it grow from there? Were you immediately interested in biology as an outgrowth of that, or uh, did that come in through a different window? You know, I'm advising my stepdaughter right now who's going to college in the fall, and she doesn't know what she wants to do. And I'm like, I didn't either at that age. At 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my high school guidance counselor said, you like science, you like math, go into engineering. Well, that lasted one semester. I'm like, well, this is not for me, but I happened to take a botany class that I really enjoyed. And so I took a few more. And it took probably a year or two for me to realize I could major in it, I could find a job doing it, and um, it was really what I loved. And so I hope my stepdaughter, I hope she's as fortunate in finding what she wants to do. I hope she is, too. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of pressure on women scientists of being expected to mentor younger women who might be interested in the field. How has that played out for you? So I feel very lucky that I work at a place that is predominantly women. Our department has more women than men. Our graduate program is more women than men. And so we have a a very strong female community. How do you think the Chicago Botanic Garden got that way? I don't think that's so common in the sciences. Botany in particular has always been a field where women have been welcomed. But that's only the beginning because we really need to welcome other folks who have been underrepresented in the sciences as well. And so that means bringing in people who are first in their family to go to college, who didn't go to a high school that had a great science program, people of color. We're really trying to do that at the garden, building pathways for lots of different people to get into the sciences. Kay, do you have a life philosophy, any basic tenets that you live by? Persistence is probably my philosophy. You know, it can be frustrating for new people in the field that 
you know, there's this perception that you fight and fight and fight and turn your back for one minute and a site is lost, a population is lost, a species is lost, and you can't put that back together again. And so that and this too will change. That's what I've been saying lately. <laughs> this too will change. So we're struggling with lack of funding for science um, in the current administration. And I've worked you know, in the field 30 years, and I've not seen science funding so restricted as it's been recently. And uh, this too will change, but it's it's very frightening and sobering for graduate students who are looking at this as a career and, and wondering if there's a place for them. That sounds really exhausting. Where do you find your strength to continue to be persistent? I guess I'm in awe by plants and their interconnections um, with the rest of the organisms they live with, they can't speak for themselves. So someone has to speak for them. And, you know, I'll be the one who will do it. Me and my students and my colleagues will do it because someone has to. Um, They don't have voices and we do. What do you think they want to say? (laughs) I think they want to say, um, you know, give us our space. Let us live. We have to keep enough open space and green space that we can keep these species on the planet with us. Thank you so much for coming in, Kay. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Persist may not seem like enough of an action, like it's something passive. It sounds a little too much like the slacker's advice in The Big Lebowski, abide. But in conservation, persistence is not the least bit passive. It's almost all there is. It's the end game. The pitcher's thistle's simple continued existence is what we hope for. That right now, even as you're listening to this, that those plants are still hanging on out there on the sandy dunes in Door County. That they'll hang on for one more growing season. And after that, one more. And after that, that they can persist for one more decade, one more score. Next week on Shape of the World, the secret lives of the fastest animals on Earth. And they're just outside our window. Until then, whatever else you do, please, at least, persist. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you will end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Facebook and Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find a photo of the pitcher's thistle, a link to the film about the cane toad, and a drawing of Kay by the artist Rose Curley, and much more. Shape of the World's producer is Isabel Vasquez. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thanks to today's guest, Kay Havens, and thank you to the Chicago Botanic Garden.